Hello and welcome back to the London Magazine podcast. I am Jamie Cameron, Managing Editor here at the magazine, and I'm joined by Katie Tobin, our Editorial and Marketing Assistant. Katie, it's uh, good to be back in the studio with you. How are you doing? Really good. I'm just enjoying my first Christmas in London. I've got a few bucket list items I'm trying to tick off, but currently avoiding Columbia Road because I see it's Mm. manic round that way. I feel like Christmas in London is is actually quite nice. It's like January to March post-Christmas, which is like the time where like disassociation really starts to take hold and like the reality of London kind of hits at least that's my take but on that cheery note we are delighted to be joined by a contributor to our recently released December January 2024 issue short story writer playwright I think soon to be novelist (laughs) Vida Adamczewski Vida is the author of our story A Childhood Experience of Yellow that appears in our latest issue and that story comes from her debut collection Amphibian and Other Bodies which is out right now on Tooth Grinder Press Vida, it's so great to have you on the show. Um, We're recording on quite like a chilly Monday morning, a few weeks out from Christmas. How are you? How do you feel about London at this time of year? See, I was born in London, so Mm. I actually love London (laughs) over Christmas because everyone else goes away Mm. and uh, I'm left with only really, really eccentric characters in Peckham, those that you're not sure quite where they live or what they're actually doing for Christmas, but you'll find them in the Gowlet. (laughs) drinking till four o'clock in the afternoon what's peckham like once all the out school students leave at christmas is it an entirely different place joyous joyous, joyous. <laughs> no um that's a horrible thing to say but it is actually <laughs> quite nice to suddenly realize that all of the people that have been there my whole life old artists and kind of bizarre families my dad's ex-girlfriends are all still about it's just that normally they're lost in the kind of like melee of mummies and babies and bankers see this is why i don't like going home for christmas because then i run into all my dad's ex-girlfriends in in the midlands you know so it's yeah two sides of the same coin they're an underexplored part of the christmas experience (laughs) well dad's girlfriends they they absolutely (laughs) are that's a short story like waiting to happen please by the way anyway i wanted to start before we go into a childhood experience of yellow and the story and our, our recent issue, just by talking a bit about the wider collection, Amphibian mm-hmm. and Other Bodies, one of the first things I noticed when I got a copy was just how considered and purposeful everything felt from the choice of the preface through to the, like, the epigraph to the ordering of the stories, even to the book itself, which is, I think, such a beautiful object with all the kind of various images inside as well. So. I'd love to know, like, were you very conscious of putting together a collection when you were working with Tooth Grinder on this? What was the kind of genesis of, of the whole project as a collection? So it's quite a nice story, actually, because I began with the play. Um, Amphibian, I wrote in 2021 in about 12 days. I was landed with a very exciting commission for the Playmill Young Writers Festival at the King's Head Theatre in Islington and... I was working with a director friend of mine called John Livesey and he said, I'd love you to write a play, an experimental play for this slot. But we need it all by May the 17th and it was May the 2nd. Um, (laughs) So I wrote this play really, really quickly and there were lots and lots and lots of things that I'd been thinking about over lockdown that got put into the play. Chiefly my experience of abortion, but also lots and lots of things about bodies and dissociation and parents and secrets and families and things like that and then once the play had been on stage twice Ned from Tooth Grinder approached me and said I'd love to publish the play text because it's so kind of dense it's really not like a traditional play at Mm. all Um, and I said I would love that but this now feels like quite old work for me and there's lots of stuff in here that I have been trying to work out how to extend or um, go back to explore again. And so the collection is really born out of that process of returning to snippets of the play and then sort of stretching them out, extending them to their sort of like most full world from things like there's a dog in amphibian the play in something like scene six that's mentioned very briefly in a park so then one of the stories in the collection is dog and is an extended description of a dog's kind of interiority Mm. so i think what gives it that structure is that amphibian is like the foundation for it and then everything else is kind of built on top of that Mm. Uh, and that made it quite easy for me to write because i had a sort of parameters set by the play 
and the themes of the play, but also a little bit like I always think that I'm more creative within a structure, which is probably like Christian girls' school. (laughs) (laughs) But it means that I felt like I could really expand on, like take things to really weird places because they were all kind of already safely couched within this one experience. So that's the genesis of it. It was written to be a collection, Mm. and it is a collection. So you say it kind of all came from Amphibian. Is the original play text that was performed the same as the text that's in the in the collection or did you kind exactly of resist the, the same. Exactly, exactly the same it's exactly the same and as you say it is it is quite dense and to read it on the page almost feels like it makes more sense. i can't imagine what it was like to perform that how did that work because with the kind of different interiority of yeah. and the you know some of the characters are literally disembodied dis- a body yeah kind so of, we yeah. had um the first staging of it we had three bodies on stage so i play body and then an actress called Natalie Quarry played woman. We look reasonably similar to each other and we've been friends for a few years so it felt quite natural to play two halves of this character. And then in the first staging we had the lecturer character, this kind of strange absent male voice, was played by a male actor called Max Cadman. But in the second staging of it, which we did a year later uh, in 2022, we actually just took a voice recording of Stephen Hagen and then played it as a voiceover. Uh, so there was an actually disembodied voice and then me and Natalie playing both halves of the body again. So it was the thing about the play is that it's divided into these two very, very distinct voices, but for one person. And that was a really fun thing to play with when staging it because there's no need for them to ever really directly interact with each other because they just coexist there was lots and lots of space for sort of strange sound and light work um, with the staging because there's nothing in the play that requires big um, kind of naturalistic set pieces or anything like that so the text is really where the entire play kind of happens and then we just found people to take on those voices and budget constraints meant that I was acting, <laughs> which <laughs> I wouldn't normally do. As you say, working within kind of self-imposed or otherwise imposed structures is actually quite a nice way to work sometimes for, for kind of prompting creativity. So this this central kind of metaphor or image or however you want to describe it of the amphibian, um, you mentioned this kind of play came out of your experience of abortion. Can you talk a bit about where this kind of central conceit um, came from perhaps? Yeah, so I feel um, so lucky with Amphibian's sort of development process because uh, it's given me a whole load of lovely anecdotes. Um, (laughs) So the frog image comes from my, first and foremost, from my instinctive response to an unwanted pregnancy, which was just this feeling that I was occupied by a kind of parasite um, and that I wanted it to be out of me. I never had any kind of connection with the fetus that was maternal um, and it very much felt like a sort of alien thing inside me. And because of how they look on ultrasounds and things like that, there was something naturally amphibian about the fetus. It floats in water within you, but it will be able to breathe with air. It's really strange little beast. So that was the instinctive kind of like image as kind of reflex, I suppose. And then I was speaking to a friend of mine who uses a lot of amphibian images in her painting, uh, Joy Jindu, and she said, well, have you heard of this frog, the Xenopus levis African clawed frog, that was the first mainstream pregnancy test? Because that's the perfect link for this abstract image and this kind of the concrete reality, the history of reproductive medicine. And I hadn't heard about that frog so that was really 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 invigorating I was suddenly like oh I'm not just you know nuts actually my instinctive response to this is kind of grounded in some history here and then I found the amphibian image to be one of the most fruitful like sort of fecund images that I've ever happened upon there are just so many times in my writing where I'm looking for something that's kind of able to express like a slipperiness, an in-betweenness, liminal, like embodied but also really not human or embodied but kind of gross. And 
I've found that frogs and salamanders and axolotls just tickle my boxes. <laughs> it's obviously a deeply personal text in this sense, but how do you think it kind of bears since originally writing it by way of everything that's going on globally and particularly in the UK with regards to this kind of increased surveillance of, of femtech app and more abortion prosecutions? Yeah, I mean, the the thing that was interesting for me with Amphibian when I first wrote the play was that it was about having a abortion during lockdown, sort of telemedicine, pills by post. This debate was being had about whether that should, whether that had been a good thing, whether that should be sustained, with very little understanding from, I think, most of the public and almost all of the politicians about what pills by post meant and the idea that home home abortions, even when they were prescribed and are like really regulated and checked by medical professionals and you get loads of advice and it's actually reasonably difficult to get one without actually being seen in person at some point people were worried that everyone would just be popping pills to get rid of like babies and so that was the space that I initially wrote Amphibian from was to kind of try and explain the reality the complex reality of having an abortion and then and that was 2021 and then 2022 the reversal of Roe v. Wade happened and it was this extraordinary moment for me because the play went from being something that was primarily about me wrangling with my own experience of abortion and trying to explain how pills by post worked as a process to having written something that was quite controversial and really really politicized like suddenly became I was asked loads of questions about what I thought about abortion law and reproductive justice and and that was exciting for me because it's a subject that I care about but it did shift my relationship with the text and I now see the text as being a lot less personal and a lot more about sharing frank abortion stories and how important that is to give kind of a human perspective a real kind of like grounding in the reality of what it is to have an abortion and to have an unwanted pregnancy um to kind of counteract this pro-life argument about you having like an instant maternal bond and uh, it being this disastrous kind of evil thing to do but it, yeah i guess i i think it holds up still as a piece of writing i still think that it does that job well but it's a very different piece of writing to me now. I barely see myself in it, whereas when I wrote it, I think I felt that I was really writing about myself and only about myself. But every time someone's read it or it's been put on, the most amazing thing about it is that I get people coming up to me and are telling me their abortion stories, things that they've never felt they could ever say out loud. And so even if I go through it sometimes and cringe at some of them, phrases that I use if it's doing that work then I think it's kind of useful it's really interesting because in the planning stages for for the podcast a couple of weeks ago I went to the launch of Silver Press's new book After Sex which is yeah it's fantastic isn't it and it was so interesting hearing all these kind of different representations of abortion and it talks about in so many different ways with perspectives through Bell Hooks and Ursula Le Guin. And I just wanted to know what it was like writing something kind of so candid at that point in time, if that's something you're comfortable talking about. Um, it was... Do you know, I don't... I just don't think I really had a choice. I think... I... So it was a year, I wrote Amphibian a year after I had an abortion and I hadn't really thought about how to write up that experience or whether I even wanted to. I had barely told anyone that I'd had an abortion. My partner knew, my partner, unlike the partner in the play, was very present. Um, but my parents didn't know. Um, lots of my friends didn't know. I mean, my dad didn't know until he actually came to see the play, which was <laughs> maybe... Now I think about it quite cruel of me. But I think, yeah, I don't think I really had a choice. I think there was this moment in 2021 where I just knew that I needed, it was the only thing I could think to write about. It was like every other idea that was in my head just disappeared. 
and it felt like the most necessary thing I'd written um and so I wasn't afraid of it because it felt so it felt almost so candid like so brutally honest um that it undid all of the insecurity I might have had about people reading about this very intimate experience it suddenly just was like well there I have there's nothing else that I can write about so that'll have to do in a way and that's I think how quite a lot of my writing works really I always like to think of myself as someone who makes these like concerted quite like you know uh, informed political well-researched decisions about what my subject matter is going to be but I think mostly I get locked onto an idea I can't shake it until I've written it down and I can't write anything else until I've finished it so I sort of I sort of hem myself in in that way and fortunately uh, with Amphibian I think I hemmed myself into something that I still find interesting now so I I don't look back on it and think oh god that was sort of wallowing or anything. Hmm. This theme of of the body um, and I mean the title of the collection Amphibian and other bodies the the preface ends with a quote was like you know your body is not in this book you know don't look for it here i'm really interested by the ways in which this is clearly body writing if you want to put it that way and mm-hmm. i'm so you know preoccupied with the body but then simultaneously is really cerebral really of the mind um in, in both its style and also its kind of preoccupations as well are you kind of do you see yourself as either one or the other if somebody likes to write about mind or body do you think that's even a viable distinction like is oh my god i w- I'm a philosophy student, so you can't ask me about the mind-body yeah, distinction. Yeah, the you know, general no. or whatever. Yeah. I mean, the mind-body thing for me as a writer is uh, closely related to living within a sick body. Mm. So I have I live with a chronic illness called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which means that I'm like sort of innately floppy, just like put together quite badly, and get very tired. And this kind of energy limiting condition or um, pain, chronic pain condition means that I spent like a lot of time in bed, but very like stuck in my body, feeling frustrated with my body or feeling at odds with my body and therefore spending a lot of time living within my mind, kind of uh, placing myself into alternative worlds or having very 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 vivid dreams um or trying to focus on what i'm thinking about some kind of like subject matter reading or toying with a problem uh, instead of living kind of present in pain and so i think they're so intimately linked for me that i I can't not write about the body because the body is what entire i feel completely defined by my body um there are simply things that I cannot do because and my, and my body tells me no in a very clear way. But also that when you become so kind of um, sensitive to aware of your body, when your body becomes so important to you and it, there's something that you can just never ignore. You can never put to one side. Um, you can never push through its pain or anything like that. Then you end up finding this like solace in being really like a thinking person as opposed to like a doing person mm. i guess um and so the collection is suit is really body writing mm. i mean like first and foremost my like writing obsession is how do i precisely describe pain how do i precisely describe tiredness how do i precisely describe this feeling of desire within a body or hunger or any of those kinds of like really body first feelings there's like idea of like interoception it's like my new favorite Mm. word (laughs) like the seventh sense which is whether you can tell whether you're hungry or tired whether you can feel your heart beating whether you know how big your tongue is there's fascinating studies about people who have chronic anxiety issues and how they actually have like a a heightened ability to propriocept or whatever the phrase would be their own feelings so you know it's not just that your, your mind's whatever it's that you actually feel things more intensely in in an interior sense and that you feel things in a you sort of learn to pinpoint things Mm. and all that the pinpointing becomes the the task as opposed to just the noticing that you really want to like work out exactly like i have this very strange feeling often in my such such tangential point (laughs) but this very strange feeling often in my 
bones, like what feels like the interior of my bones, um, when I'm about to get ill, which is the yeah. kind of flu ache thing, except mm-hmm. that I am sure that what I'm feeling is my body producing white blood cells. Like, that's, that's I really feel certain that that's true. So there will definitely be a medic listening to this and be like, <laughs> as if. But <laughs> I, as only I have that kind of sensation that, that you can translate these very precise feelings and that they tell us very, very precise things about what we're experiencing. So it's really body writing, I guess, because that's the aim of it is to describe those things. Mm. But I have never been able to think about the body without also getting kind of caught up in lots of uh, how the mind plays kind of mm. tricks on you or, or tries to distance you from your body or bring you back to your body or whatever. For, for the kind of any of the medics who are listening, I, I swear there are diff- there are like specific studies which show that people with that kind of sense of proprioception can like pinpoint their hearts yeah. more accurately than other people and pinpoint areas of their body. I believe it. Feelings. So I'm I'm fully in. Like yeah. London Magazine is all in on this. Good to so know. Go. We'll I cite am. sources in post. We will. We will. <laughs> to get to kind of to make our own tangent uh, now as well, and to really kind of focus back on short story as a craft. What was your kind of journey into the short story? Because as you say, Amphibian is a kind of lyric play. I believe that you kind of came to things through poetry first. Is mm-hmm. that right? So yeah, that's right. Where do where do short stories fall into that? Short stories are like my new toy. I'm <laughs> just loving them. I think they combine. So the thing I initially started really writing poetry and reading poetry when I was about sixteen. I mean, reading in public as opposed to reading books. Um, and the thing that I found so uh, addictive about poetry and poetry recitals is that you had this uh, very condensed bit of language that you delivered to an audience and then you got this very like instant kind of response to it and that's really what started my writing my like passion for writing really was that like instant feedback um and this this feeling of intensity in any piece of poetry this like that it's like a perfect structure and that was so satisfying. And then I started writing sort of longer form, like lyric essays, I suppose. I went to Oxford and studied politics, and philosophy and economics. Um, Where art goes to die. Exactly. <laughs> and it really was an experience as, as an academic experience. I was bedbound for a lot of it. And I spent a lot of time writing essays that were obsessed with not using flowery language, not being overly detailed, using lots of examples and formulae and being sort of profoundly logical. And so to kind of cut through that, I used to write these really long, strange lyric essays on the same subjects, just so that I had some kind of place to put all of these thoughts that they were sort of bringing out. Um, And that kind of is the structure that Amphibian is written with in a way. It's sort of like a long lyric essay, monologue, prose play. Mm. Um, <laughs> and that kind of, the freedom of having more space to write in than a poem does, just more words, um, and to kind of sustain an idea over a longer period of time, I found again I kind of got this new uh, like addictive buzz from it that was a little bit like reading in public except now that I could sort of send people away with something (laughs) and I felt like I was like sneaking into their like homes and I think that the short story kind of combines that and it's still intense it's not you know it's not 250 pages it's 10 pages and probably will be read in one sitting so it has that intensity of like a live performance almost that it's you get like a shot of a mm. short story. And you can still um, obsess over literally every yeah. line in the way you would a poem Exactly, as well. mm. yeah. It very, really leans into my kind of obsessive locked-on tendency. <laughs> but it's also got this this space, just this like vastness within it, within its limited pages, this like infinity, which you can... Um, you can just write as much as you want about something without l- losing your reader, which I found just so liberating. So the short stories kind of like, they're kind of lyric short stories, I guess, some of them, and then some of them are straighter, some of them are even weirder. But the thing that I like about them is their intensity, I think. I'm 
sort of on a related note, I'm really interested in the intersection between forms where uh, genre kind of collides and it blurs together and how it feels to write something so fluid in that sense. Do you know how it's going to come out when you begin writing these sorts of projects? Mm, That's a really interesting question. So I always say that I'm like voice first, like a voice comes to me. And normally what I'm doing is just like transcribing that voice. And the voice has like a particular form that it will fit into. There's only one possible form that will take on the the particular quirks of that voice. So there's a story in Amphibian and Other Bodies called Ragnarok, which is like an end of the world apocalypse story. But it's written as a chorus voice and then sort of interspliced with headlines like newspaper headlines. And the chorus voice was something that I was kind of attracted to just as an idea. I'd read a few books that were written in chorus voice, Diz Tate's Brutes, which I really, really loved. And also... the other one? Virgin Suicides. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, that's the big one. Um, And I was just like, there's something about the, the kind of, particularly like the teenage girl writing in chorus, which seems to suit it really well. And so I wondered what other kind of chorus voices you could have. And I happened to think that in sci-fi writing or kind of apocalypse dystopian writing, we tend to listen to the human voice being attacked by either some kind of parasite or some kind of alien species. And we listen to the, the individual human, maybe a family unit at a push, who expresses their... Um, their stress and worry about this end of the world experience and I'd always wondered what it would be like if you heard the Triffids talking <laughs> you know or indeed even the the kind of chorus children in the midwitch cuckoos what they actually sound like inside as opposed to coming from a human perspective and, and judging their way of expressing and being in the world and assuming that they're malevolent as well just because they have just because their actions lead to bad things for humanity doesn't mean that they're they have malintent so that's kind of that was one where I had this voice that this idea of a voice that I wanted to write and that kind of gave it the structure because there was no way of writing a chorus voice that then was like in a really straight um non-experimental sort of form it just didn't work it just sounded kind of corny um, and then there are lots of other stories that have a sort of similar, there's a sort of similar bit of thinking that happens at the beginning of them where I try and work out who's talking to me and then what kind of shape they need to be in so that their voice can be as expansive as possible. Have you seen The Creator, the sci-fi film that came out earlier this year? It's not very good, but oh. it it's the kind of the first, well, the first sci-fi film I've seen that kind of just does what you describe when it, it comes out at the end, it's like pro-AI. Like the AI have killed whole of humanity. And the ending, the kind of moral seems to be that, yeah, that maybe that's a good thing. So I'm really interested oh in God. that art form that actually kind of sides with the Triffids. I will have to watch that, yeah. I mean, it's not actually very good, so I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why I want to fully kind of recommend it. But it's interesting that that idea is now kind of playing itself out across I think forms. it's hard to... I mean, particularly in dystopia, the, the structure, the premise of dystopia has always been, I think human beings are quite bad at managing crises and bad at managing resources and often very greedy. This is what would happen in a crisis situation. We would treat each other terribly. Yeah. And I've always thought, well, if we know that we are the people who are managing the situation badly, why we blame this like other? And so I think there is a shift happening, which is it's hard to not read dystopia that pits the alien species as being this like evil thing Mm. that's caused us all this uh, we wouldn't be cruel to each other if it wasn't for the triffids (laughs) and i think it's quite easy to sort of call bullshit on that now yeah um and very satisfying when you read or encounter some dystopia which actually does say but humanity sucks sucks (laughs) Uh, you know yeah i think even in the case of novels that like children of men for example that tend to handle this what if it's the humans 
making yeah. everything awful. There's still this external catalyst of some kind of unspecified ecological disaster or yeah. cataclysmic event that still prompts, it, it's like a fallback for kind of rather than intervening yeah. in what we ourselves do to each other. That's kind of the same as in Death of Grass, which I, I read this yeah, I'm going to forget who wrote it, but it's good. Um, in which all species of grass die and then everyone has to try and survive without any food, basically. Mm. But this ecological disaster, which is was super, super realistic, um, you know, it's just like mould, basically. I was like, but we have got to have a reckoning with the fact that human beings create famine anyway. Yeah even when there aren't food shortages like the idea that it would only be when there's like mass crop death that people starve is like a kind of unbelievably short-sighted um way of writing a dystopian novel you don't actually really need a crisis for a dystopian novel yeah that's the thing right the dystopia seems like somewhat of an excuse when you can literally just write the reality and it's yeah. you know, just a naturalistic novel anyway i thought it'd be now good to have a reading of your story from our latest issue mm. a childhood experience of of yellow it's a pretty heart-wrenching story, um, but I'd say it's, it's handled really lightly. It's it's never kind of feels melodramatic, but it definitely packs you know a huge emotional punch. Whenever you're ready, Vida, feel free to to take it away. The summer that I turned seven, we go to stay with my uncle and his wife on their farm for a whole two weeks. Each morning, I'm thrust into the mastery of my big cousin Ella. She crosses her arms and says she does not see why she has to look after the baby. She rolls her eyes, throws her chin back and huffs like a horse shaking a fly from its nostril. I fear she will pull my arm out of its socket as she yanks me behind her into the garden. She likes four games. Calling me baby while she combs my hair. Hide and seek, in which she is always losing interest and wandering off. A game called dares. In dares she makes me do things like put my hand inside holes in trees and still change from coat pockets. And Ella's favourite game is not what I call a game because it does not have rules and you cannot call time out. In this game, she just tells me to try. She just tells me things to try and scare me. Once she told me that in the barn they cut the heads off chickens and the dead chickens run around the rest of the day spurting blood from their severed necks. Sometimes they escape from the barn and run into the house. I said I didn't believe her and to prove it she shoved me into the barn to look at the axe and the blood stain on the wooden stump. I wet myself. It soaked through my jeans, squelching in my sandals and mushing in the sawdust. Since then, Ella tries to spook me most days. Today she points out every creepy crawly in the garden in a witchy voice, the beetles and bugs that pour out of the flowers, the great yellow slugs on the back of the shed and the monstrous centipedes under the flower pots. She lifts up a log and drips wood lice onto my upturned palm. I stick my nose in the air and declare that I am not scared. I think to myself proudly that I actually quite like insects. Their antennae and their little legs waving in the air, the ink blot patterns on their backs. They all scuttle and shrink from Ella's big feet crunching through the grass, but when she slopes off, sick of me, and leaves me squatting quietly in the dirt, they venture out again. A clutch of beetles appear on a leaf, glinting brilliant green their armoured backs splitting into fine wings. Now I am alone in the garden, I am become queen of the insects, and these are my guards. As queen of the insects, I have certain powers. I command the spiders to sneak into Ella's wellingtons and scuttle up her legs, and satisfied, I nod farewell to the beetles and remove my crown. I can hear the distant murmurings of adults and the squawking of the hens. This part of the garden is hidden from the cottage. My arms and legs tingle with the thrill of being alone. I shuffle my bum more squarely on the ground and cross my legs. I close my eyes. I much prefer pretending to playing games, especially Ella's. I pretend I have red ringlets and live on the farm. Except it's the farm as it was a hundred years ago, so Ella isn't there and I am wearing a dress and a white apron. I stand up and address a toddler at my knee. I pull some leaves off the brambles and stuff them into my pockets. Money is always tight, but we sell strawberries and eggs to get by. I make some piles from the leaves and count them worriedly. I make shooing sounds and a sour face like my mother. 
I stand up and put my hands on my hips. I have several goats. I have to sweep them out of the kitchen, telling them off for eating the slippers. On my farm, we do not decapitate the animals, not even the chickens. My father finds me in a reverie, stirring my leaves with a stick, mud on my knees and streaking my arms. He crouches next to me. Where's Elagon? I shrug. He's silent for a moment. He holds a finger up to the leaf and one of the beetles walks onto his nail. It's a rose chafer. Isn't that a pretty name? I look up at him. He whispers conspiratorially into my ear. Come with me. I've got something to show you. I skip next to him, swinging on his arm, my hand warm inside his. We sit down beside each other by the chicken coop and I lean gently into his musky aniseed smell. The coop looks exactly like the cottage but in miniature. It would be the perfect size for dolls. My father opens up the roof and I stand on my tiptoes to see inside. There, nestled in the straw, are a huddle of little chicks. Their yellow wool is streaked with grey and clods of dirt. My father says, You can have one if you like. They turn their heads quizzically up at us. They have black, glossy eyes like the beads in my mother's jewellery box which she lets me sift through when I am poorly. My father pours a chick into my cupped hands and tells me to take it into the house. I can keep it forever. We'll put it in a box and you can take it home, he says. I ask him where it will live. Can it live in my room? I ask hopefully. He shakes his head, grinning. He tells me that we can build a hen house of our own. He tells me to hold it very tightly so it doesn't hop away. It is so soft. It is the softest thing I have ever felt. I can feel its feet scratching at my palms and the restless throbbing of its tiny heart. With my finger I stroke the ripple of its ribs, a little cage moving rapidly. Its bones must be like pins. I worry it might trickle through my fingers like sand. I startle at the jerking of its head as it tries to peck my fingers apart. My father laughs at my bulging eyes. Hold it tight now. All the way up the garden path I focus fiercely on holding it still and tight. It is so warm, snuggled into the nest of my fingers. I worry my father will tell me off if I drop it or let it run away. He might even make me carry it back to the coop. I try to pretend I am a farmer who is always hiding a chick in her apron pocket. Instead of this, I imagine the chick falling out of my hands where it surely would be ripped to shreds by one of Ella's cats, or a dog, or a fox. The cats swing their tails from low branches as we pass. I can feel that the chick is scared. Its whole body seems to thrum with nervous life. My father strides ahead of me. I am filled with so strong a love that I can hardly breathe. I hold my chick close to me, right up to my chest, where I imagine it can feel my heart beating as stridently and fearfully as its own. When we come into the kitchen, my father opens a special tin with holes stabbed in the lid and holds it out to me. He says, I can put the chick in there. Ella comes over to look. I shake my head at my dad. I do not want to open my hands. I bite my lip. The chick is still. My tummy rolls. Ella tugs at my fingers. I do not want to open my hands. She dares me. The chick's limp body tumbles into the box like an old hanky. It looks odd. Flat. Its wiry legs that had so furiously scratched at me lie at an awkward angle. My lip quivers. My father puts the lid on the, on the tin and says nothing. I burst into tears. I was so afraid then, of the silence all around me, the yellow silence of the chick radiating from the tin of Ella's silence, her hand still clamped upon my wrist, of my father's hesitation before he gathered me into his arms, hush-hushing my sobs and holding me tight against his chest. Finally, my ear pressed to his heart so I could hear it beating, real and steady and loud like a fist. Thank you so much for that reading. That was amazing. Um, Thank you. 
I think that is definitely one of my my favourite stories in the collection. And there's lines in that that the the ripple of its ribs and it kind of falling into the box like a hanky that yeah are going to stay uh, with me for for a long while. Maybe this is somewhat of a, an unfair question, but the story really feels to me that it has the kind of mark of a lived experience. Like it feels so true. And a lot of kind of writers reject or, you know, resent the idea of being asked this. But is that based on lived experience in the way that other parts of the collection are or not? Um, it is, but not my lived experience. Interesting, okay. Um, it's actually a story about my granny, kind of combined with some things that happened to my mum when she was little as well. But it's mostly my granny Fiona, my father's mum, told me a story almost identical to this. Not quite the same in South Africa, not in... England, this is a kind of proxy England, but basically the same story. When I was probably five or six, and I remember so vividly her telling this story and thinking that that was the worst possible thing that could ever happen, um, that it would be so shaming and embarrassing and tragic, and you'd feel so guilty. And I, it just stuck with me for such a long time. And then, um, when I was starting to put together the collection, I had this real desire to write a story that was from a child's perspective. and But I didn't want it to be like a patronising perspective mm. for a child. Um, I wanted to think about how children actually live in the world, um, which is in a very intense way, where everything is heightened and everything is much bigger and harder to wrangle with than it is when you're an adult. And that just felt like the story that summed that that up, that feeling. Um, so I nicked it from my granny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it has like it's one of those one of those stories as you as you describe it coming from your granny, where it it almost feels like it becomes yours. Like I've read that story a few times now, and it feels like it happened to me. So yeah. I'll be kind of maybe I'll end up stealing it as well. But yeah, that's good. It's a uh, it's, it's like a buffet, comments, you know. Yeah. <laughs> So moving on to our literary dilemma section, this is the segment where we ask uh, the writers and guests on the podcast uh, questions that you, our listeners, have sent in about writing issues. We encourage anyone who wants inspirational guidance to send some in. You can reply to our call outs on Instagram stories and Twitter when we do them or just drop us an email anytime. So I think one of the things that I'm really keen to know, because you've got a few grants um, before and obviously been commissioned to do things, I'd love to know how you kind of pitch something as experimental as this purely because I can't imagine trying to condense it into something more commercial or maybe palatable so often unsuccessfully firstly <laughs> um, I think that there are uh, appetites different appetites for experimental or less experimental work and that sometimes the best way of pitching it is just to find someone who seems susceptible to experimental work so um, I like that word susceptible yeah. <laughs> picking picking your target first and I tend to do that by looking for first of all places that explicitly support experimental boundary breaking like form fucking writing and there are a surprisingly large number of them. Um, they're often places that do lots of like interdisciplinary stuff. So there are lots of um, like residency foundations that support interdisciplinary artists because they want people to kind of collaborate. And there are also lots of... I, I, I follow a newsletter, very useful newsletter, Sean Meads Williams, like freelance writing jobs. And she just compiles an amazing list of everything that every opportunity that's open. I think they put week. us on there recently. Well, it's <laughs> great. Um, and I found a lot of things through there. She writes a really neat summary of what kind of thing they're looking for and who might be... Um, who it might suit so that's one way of just like cutting your admin a little bit and finding your target and then I think the conviction that the experimental form or language is the best and only way of writing your subject matter um so instead of trying to justify ex experimentation for experimentation's sake or form fucking because you don't like form in traditional form speaking more about the fact that it resonates with your subject matter so if you want to write about strange experiences of bed boundedness and 
ill bodies like me, then it makes a lot of sense to give those experiences kind of like a timeless or structureless quality because that's how they feel. Um, so yeah, trying to find the right target and then thinking that your idea is probably more interesting than the like exciting, crazy thing that you want to do with language, certainly to the person you're pitching it to, emphasising the idea and then the, the language and the form are the tools. No one apart from writers really cares about the way that you're fucking language up that's like an in it's like an in joke <laughs> so <laughs> go with the subject matter first so just to kind of round it out what's coming next for you you've mentioned a novel how has it been finishing that and how much can you tell us about it at this stage well it's not finished not <laughs> entirely and but it has been a really amazing process for me it's very different to writing short stories i I actually think it's more different to writing short stories than short stories were to writing poetry because it's about sustaining an idea for a really long period of time and also like plot just <laughs> is important in a way that I have never really found plot very important. I realised the more that I work on my novel that my theory that I liked literary fiction where nothing happened and there weren't plot driven at all was just the clever writing making me think that nothing was happening, but actually quite a lot goes on. Yeah. Um, I now realise what it is to try and write a book in which nothing happens. Uh, it's impossible. Um, but, yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting process for me. It requires a lot more discipline around my writing routine. Um, I'm, I will never be someone who wakes up at five in the morning and eats yoghurt and then writes for three hours, runs a 5K and then goes to work. Like... I am not the good writer in that respect. Um, what I'm does much, your your routine look like then? My routine Ten is, games, though, is it? <laughs> yeah. half marathon, yeah. bash exactly, out in yeah, the morning. Absolutely, um, two in the morning. It's it's more like I I usually work for two or three hours a day, but often good. often yeah. while doing something else. So often while I'm working in the bookshop. Um, which is what I actually do for money. Um, or I will write for a couple of hours in the afternoon uh, and then maybe another hour just before bed. Um, or I don't write at all for a couple of days and then I do a much longer stint on another day. But I'm always having to juggle writing alongside other things. So that like perfect routine um, has just never really suited me. And I think that that's, a cha that's not really a challenge for short story writing or poetry writing because you write in intense bursts and then you write intense bursts of work. But it has been more challenging with the novel. But in a way that's kind of opened me up to the idea that there is value in routine. habit and discipline and routine mm -hmm. and that that's, it's actually not the death of creativity, that work doesn't have to be spontaneous to be interesting or exciting or... Um, creative it's a shame we didn't get to chat much about the kind of book selling angle because i feel like of all the jobs that kind of a writer can do alongside mm. their writing that's got to be pretty high up the kind of the pantheon of uh desirability yeah it's, you know? it's great yeah it's um we get to read proofs and <laughs> i get a discount on books so that's all my research material sorted and um, as illustrated in the codfather you deal with some interesting very interesting customers <laughs> yeah. um yeah it's a it's a great a great place to work as a writer. Great. As a kind of final question, just to, to finish off the episode, we like to ask our guests what they've been enjoying recently, whether that's a kind of an album, a film, a book, a, a play, maybe a collection of poetry, whatever. What have you kind of been enjoying recently or reading recently or watching, oh. listening, etc.? Um, I am revisiting an album at the moment, Connie Converse's How Sad, How Lovely, which is a fantastic album by... Um, woman who disappeared she just got into her car in the 60s and just went and no one has ever heard from her since and so there's only really there's a really limited amount of her material there's maybe like 15 songs in total but they're funny little folky really sad like beautiful poems set to music really and I've been revisiting that because part of the thing that I'm writing about in the novel is I'm writing about my brother and this is an album that he gave me a few years ago so that's something I've been really enjoying and then I 
have been reading um, a whole selection of stuff, but I have, again, another kind of revisiting. Um, I promise I do listen to and read things that are released <laughs> as they come out. Um, but I've just been revisiting Daisy Johnson's novel Sisters, which I rarely, and, and actually Ian McBride's novel, The Lesser Bohemians, the sort of like second third novels um of two of my favorite writers who i always go to their debuts i always think about their debut novels as being kind of their defining texts so girls a half-formed thing for ian mcbride and then everything under for daisy johnson but these two sort of second novels are so excellent and um such a like development of they're like much both of them are much more domestic both of them are like much more kind of like relational and they're probably less weird but actually that's kind of feels like a suitable or like a nice parallel for me at the moment which is the form and the language in both of those books is still very weird but they're kind of more grounded in these kind of naturalistic relationships um so i've been absolutely loving those and feeling very gratified that you can start with weird fiction and then end up writing about your siblings which is what i'm trying to do I feel like there's, that's kind of a radical thing because like, the, the publishing world, it's a bit like, it's almost become like music now. Like the debut has become this like commercialized entity and people don't care as much about second follow-up. So to revisit those, I think is kind of a, it's like an interesting yeah. thing to do and like a valuable thing to do now for sure. I think, yeah, yeah second novels. There you go. Rita, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was it was such a pleasure. I feel like we could keep on talking for like another 45 minutes, mm-hmm. but I think our next, our next guest would be a bit upset by that. Listeners, you can find us at London Mag on Instagram and Twitter. You can also subscribe to the magazine for just £35 a year. That's six print issues to your door for only £35. You can also order the December-January issue in which A Childhood Experience of Yellow appears at our website. Please also check out Tooth Grinder Press and, and buy Rita's book. Cause oh, it's, yes, do. It's it's amazing. It's got great reviews. There you go. Vida, Katie, I thank you both very much for coming on. Thank you.